If the thought of being swallowed by a whale and then vomited back up somewhere is not on your bucket list, and if the idea of loving your neighbor is the key to that not happening, you need to listen to this week's Critical Faith podcast with Pastor Sue Collar from First Presbyterian Church. Listen for the word of God for us today from the book of Jonah. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, Yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, You are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who did not know their right hand from their left? I know I shouldn't have done it, but I did it anyway. I read the comments of a political post. The post itself wasn't bad. I can't say I agreed with the poster's opinion, but hey, we're each entitled to our own opinion, so nothing wrong with that. Someone had then under the comments posted, not a rebuttal, but another thought on that that contradicted a little bit what the original post was about. I thought it was done quite respectfully and, and very well. And then the next post was someone who probably never met this person totally ripping into that first person who disagreed and basically calling them stupid, idiotic, disgusting, the scum of the earth. All I could say is there was no call for the way that second commenter responded because, I mean, what was the purpose? It wasn't going to change anybody's mind. It was just going to make everybody more mad. And, and all I could say is the, the vitriolic posts and responses just continued to flow after that. A little while later, I read an article about COVID in the prison here in Lancaster County, and 
I did it again. I read the comments. You'd think I would have learned by now, but apparently I have not. And one person basically said, well, good, let them all die, especially the. And then I actually had to pull out a dictionary and look up the word this person used because it just wasn't a word that's used in the people in the, in the um, community that I run with. I've never heard it before. This idea that we might seek common understanding, that we might seek to understand another person's viewpoint and, and see if there's any merit to it, that we might look to see if there's anything we have in common. This idea that we might actually treat someone who thinks differently than us with respect is such a foreign concept. Instead, we are threatened by those who have different opinions than us, almost to the point that the most common response seems to be nuclear war in words. Our goal is to decimate and demolish that other person. You're either friend or you are enemy. There is nothing in between those two extremes. And while you can cross the line from friend to enemy, there is no coming back once you're on that other side. We hate each other. And that hate is so vitriolic that I have to admit even I hesitate to get into a conversation with someone who thinks differently than me on a, a hot topic issue because I just don't want to get involved in a war. This word that we heard from Jesus, love your enemies, is I think one of the most critical teachings, directions, guidance he has for us today in this world. In this world, we are better at making enemies than friends. It is especially difficult today to love our enemies because even when we try, they lob those nuclear words back at us. We are instead bombarded with rhetoric that says you have to choose sides. There is no middle ground. It's one extreme or the other. Are you pro-abortion? Are you pro-life? You could already see the issue in the language I use. Are you for black lives or for blue lives? Because you can't be for both in this world. It has to be one or the other. You pick, and then I will decide which box I put you in, friend or enemy. Are we for family values or against family values? Of course, I'm the one who's going to define what those values are. And once I know where you stand on them, I will decide. Do you go in that friend box or the enemy box? We almost demand that we hate each other, that we make each other into enemies. And any attempt to show sympathy or understanding of, of another person who may be on the other side is almost, if not in actuality, treated as a betrayal of the true righteous people. I get that it's hard to love our enemy, especially when someone seems so on the other side of what we value and what's important to us. And it's even harder to love them when they're not lobbing those nuclear words at us. But now more than ever, we are called to be bold and courageous and living out our calling to be disciples of Jesus Christ, which means loving our enemies. If there is one thing that's needed today, it's people who can show the world that it is possible to love our enemies, that it doesn't have to be this way. This isn't, by the way, just a matter of taking the high road. It is a matter of faith and calling. If we take a look at Jonah, we see what's at stake with this 
directive to love our enemies. Jonah was that reluctant prophet called by God to go to Nineveh, tell him that in, in 40 days, God was going to utterly destroy them because of their wicked ways. Well, Nineveh was to the east, and so what does Jonah do? He runs west, and we are not told why he ran away. We aren't told why he didn't want to go, but I've got some pretty good guesses. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and if you know your biblical history, the Assyrians were not friends of God's people. They were the ones who came and invaded the northern nation of Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, and utterly demolished them, carted them off into exile, spread them out over their entire empire till we reached the point that the nation and the people just simply did not exist anymore. They basically wiped the nation of Israel off the face of the earth. Don't you think it would be risky for a prophet of that vanquished people to show up in the capital city in the streets and start telling everyone, hey, God's going to smite you for this? For that reason alone, it doesn't surprise me that Jonah might not have wanted to go where God called. But I wonder if there was more to it than that. What if Jonah warns them and they listen? What if they hear that God is going to destroy them because of their wicked ways and they say, we'll do better? next time. If God has a message for the people of Nineveh, doesn't that mean that there's a possibility that they might indeed repent and then God, as was God's nature, might respond with grace and mercy? There's just enough spite and anger in Jonah's response to their repentance and God's mercy that R.W. Moberly, he's professor of theology and biblical interpretation at Durham University, thinks that that's the most likely scenario. Why did Jonah run away? Because he didn't want his enemies to have the chance to repent and be forgiven. If someone is our enemy, doesn't it make sense that we want to paint them as God's enemies too? It's don't we want our enemies to also be God's enemies? It gives us kind of the self-righteous position if we can say, well, God agrees with us on this. What we hope for in that case is for God to listen to us, take our enemies, put them in a box, close the lid, tape it shut, and never let them out of that box. That's where Jonah was with the Ninevites. So what does Jonah do when the Ninevites do indeed hear and repent and God shows mercy? He simply pouts. He says to God, this is why I ran away. I knew you were merciful. I knew if they heard that you were angry that they might repent and you might show mercy. I knew that. And this is the kicker. He adds in, I would rather die then live in a world where you, God, show mercy to my enemies. What kind of a world would that be? A world without the possibility of reconciliation, a world without the possibility of redemption. Jonah may not have wanted to live in a world where the possibility of redemption exists for his enemies. But I'll tell you right now, I don't want to live in a world where that possibility doesn't exist. Because if... There's no hope for some people. Is there hope for me? Let me ask you this.
What gives you more hope? Believing in a God who pronounces judgment and allows no room for appeal, who puts you in a box labeled enemy and never lets you out, or believing in a God who's willing to be affected by you, believing in a God who is in relationship with you, believing in a God who waits for you to turn around and run back home after you've ran away and who runs to meet you with open arms. Which God gives you more hope? It's not that I'm saying we should make God fit whatever we want and whatever makes us feel good. The fact is God is merciful whether we like it or not. God is forgiving. It drips from the very pages of Scripture. And even when we try to put God in a box of saying, God, you can't forgive that person, well, God will be God. And God will redeem and God will save and God will forgive whether we want God to or not. Jonah learned another important lesson that day. Only when he could embrace God's mercy for others could he live in God's mercy for himself. When he was unwilling to extend God's grace to others, he put himself in a self-imposed prison of hatred and anger. We know what that's like. It's a miserable place to be. We get so caught up in hating someone else and in keeping those lines clear about who is friend and who is foe, we imprison ourselves as much as we want to imprison them. Jesus talks about that in the Lord's Prayer. God, forgive us our sins, our, our debts, our trespasses, as we forgive those who sin against us. It's not an either-or in the Lord's Prayer. It's not, God, forgive me. Oh, it's a great and wonderful. I don't have to forgive anybody else. It's, God, you forgive me only as I forgive others. It's a both-and. The receipt of forgiveness has to be accompanied by the extension of forgiveness to others or we have missed the point because forgiveness is about reconciliation. What's at stake in our ability to love our enemies is that if we aren't able to love our enemies, then we don't fully grasp God's love for us. We don't fully grasp the cost to God for loving us like God does. Now, here's the good news. If God can forgive the Ninevites, God can forgive us too. The Ninevites utterly destroyed five-sixths of God's chosen people. If God can forgive them, then there is space in God's mercy for us. God has this way of continuing to nibble away at that box we put ourselves in until we one day can fully accept the fact that we are forgiven and free people and we don't have to put others in boxes to be free and loved. Thinking back to those Facebook posts and the comments on them and the nuclear war and words being lobbed back and forth, our community needs us now more than ever to learn how to love our enemies. Now more than ever, we need to be breaking down walls instead of building them up. 
now more than ever, we need to refuse to stay in a box labeled enemy. And we need to reach out to the one who views us as an enemy. We need to show them what love looks like in action. We need to be a less reluctant prophet than Jonah and show people and our words and actions that we refuse to be labeled as an enemy and we refuse to label them as an enemy. If we can go to our own Ninevehs and love our own enemies, maybe, just maybe, we will have moved this world a little closer to the kingdom of God we pray for. I know it's hard. Not much worth having comes easy. But we begin from a place of knowing that we are loved by God. As imperfect and flawed as we are, we begin knowing we are loved by God. When we know that we then don't go into enemy territory alone. Do you really think God wasn't with Jonah when he went to Nineveh? God is present wherever we act in love, even imperfectly. Doesn't necessarily mean that our enemies will welcome us with smiles and open arms. Some may, some won't. That's their choice. You choose love. Thank you for joining us for this week's A Critical Faith podcast. Please share these podcasts via your social media platforms. And to find out more about our community where faith is nurtured, diversity is welcomed, curiosity is encouraged, and all are loved, like our Facebook page at First Presbyterian Church in Lincoln, Nebraska.